Father, we continue to just thank you for the opportunity we have to be here this morning, gathered together as your people, singing together your praises, being reminded of the power of your cross. And Father, now we come to your word because we want to hear you speak to us. We know that that without you, without your guidance, we would be lost. We'd be doing what's right in our own eyes and we'd be a mess. And yet, so we turn to you and we want you to speak into our lives. And so, Father, we pray that you would do that now. And that you would take anything that may distract us from hearing what you have to say and remove it from our hearts and from our minds or from this building or from wherever we're at. Remove that so we can hear you clearly and powerfully. Speak directly to us, Father. We pray that you would open our ears to hear, our eyes to see, and our hearts to receive what you have to say to us this morning. And all God's people said, Amen. So 1 Peter 3, verses 18 through 22. For Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive by the Spirit, through whom he also went and preached to the spirits in prison, who disobeyed long ago, when God waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being built. In it, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you. Also, not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a good conscience toward God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to Him. I want to begin um, just by reading part of a psalm. And, and as, I, as I read this psalm, remember these are all the prayers of the Bible are the psalms. I want you to try to remember the last time you prayed like this. If you've, if you've ever prayed like this. But, but if you, as, you, as I'm reading through this psalm, try to think back, try to put yourself in the place where you were, the struggle that you were going through when you prayed like this to God. How long, Lord? Will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? Look on me and answer, Lord my God. Give light to my eyes or I'll sleep in death. And my enemy will say, I have overcome him. And my foes will rejoice when I fall. You ever prayed that way? Listen to me, God. Come on. How much longer do I have to sit like this, right? I mean, and, and some people have never prayed that way because we've kind of grown up where people say, Christians can't talk to God that way. You can't say that. You can't even feel that way. You have to, if you're struggling and if you're suffering, you just have to put on a happy face and pretend like everything is good. Pretend like you have joy. Even if you don't, just pretend. It's all good. Walk around like you're walking on a fluffy cloud all of your life. 
And yet, you turn to the Bible, you go through the book of Psalms, there's 150 of them, and I haven't counted, but I would guess 50 of them are Psalms like this. Of Christian believers, people who believe God, people who trust God, crying out to Him and saying, God, how much longer do I have to suffer? I am tired. I'm exhausted. I'm worn out. Why aren't you answering me? Have you forgotten me? That's part of the Christian life. And like I mentioned last week, part of the Christian life, or even what I call the good life of faith, involves suffering and pain and struggle. But for the Christian, it's suffering and pain and struggle mixed with hope. And joy and confidence. There's there's this line that Paul uses, sorrowful yet always rejoicing, which I think describes the Christian life really well. And so I've been thinking about Noah this week because, well, our passage talks a little bit about Noah. And I was thinking that if Psalm 13 was around, it wasn't, but if Psalm 13 had been around in Noah's time, he probably would have prayed this. Um, just think about, think about what was going on in Noah's life. We think the world's crazy now. <laughs> um, it's a lot crazier back when Noah was alive. Uh, here, here's, here's the description. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth. And that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. Every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. That's a mess. And uh, and now you have Noah, who wasn't a perfect man in any way, but but he was at least called faithful Noah, right? Righteous Noah, a man who trusts in God. And he's in this world where, surrounded by evil and wickedness, surrounded by people who mocked his faith, And then, in the midst of this, God decides to bring judgment on the earth because of the wickedness that's around. He decides he's going to bring a flood and wipe everyone out except for Noah and his family. But but God doesn't do it immediately. He actually wait, God waits a really long time. And, and there's different ways to, to interpret this passage, but, but I'll explain my reasoning. But I think God waited 120 years from the time he said, I'm going to flood the earth, to the time he actually flooded it. And so there's this passage in chapter 6 that said, God says, My spirit will not contend with humans forever, for they are mortal. Their days will be 120 years. Now, some have interpreted that over the years to mean God limited the span of a human life to 120 years. God said, I'm not going to let them live any longer than 120. But after this, the Bible talks about people living over 120 years, even in Genesis. So I don't think that's what he's meaning. I think he's coming to them saying, I've numbered your days, and in 120 years, I'm going to bring a flood. And just think, how long do you think it took Noah and his two boys, or a few boys, to build that boat? 
That was big. I mean, you don't just throw that thing up over a weekend. I mean, that took, that took a long time. And so, but, but think about what's going on in Noah's mind as this happens, right? Noah, we have faithful Noah surrounded by evil wickedness. And he hears God say, all right, I'm done. I'm going to bring judgment. But I'm going to wait 120 years. Do you think there was a time in that 120 years where Noah said, How long, O Lord? Right? Do you think right about like year 115 or 118, he's like... Have you forgotten? I mean, do you still remember what you said? I mean, that was a long time ago. It's 118 years ago. Do Do you think that there was a point in that where Noah thought, my enemies are triumphing over me. Here I am, looking like an idiot, building a boat out in the middle of the desert. And I said, yeah, God said 118 years ago that he's going to flood the earth in a couple of years. And they're all like, pfft. And he thinks, yeah, my enemies are triumphing over me. I, I guarantee he, he, he felt these words. And I'm sure we've been there, right? We, we've all had experiences like this at some point where, where we have just found ourselves in this struggle where we're tired of being tired, sick of being sick, frustrated with being frustrated, whatever it is, right? Where you just are done. And, and you find yourself looking up in prayer and saying, God, how much longer are you going to, how much longer before you do something? Like, how much longer before you come down and you help and pull me out of this pit? I mean, have you forgotten me? Am I here all by myself? Why won't you come right now? And our passage says, it's because God is patient. And we're not. It's talking about in the time of Noah. It says, long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah, while the ark was being built. That, that God waited 120 years because he's, he's patient. And his patience always has a purpose. He wasn't waiting 120 years just because he knew it was going to take Noah a long time to build the boat. Like That's not why he waited 120 years. He was waiting for the world to repent. Uh, scripture always says that in Romans it says do you show contempt he's talking to just everyone do you show contempt for the riches of God's kindness forbearance and patience not realizing that God's kindness and patience is intended to lead you to repentance I mean God's very patient with us and with the world and scripture says his patience is there to lead people and lead us to repentance. That's why he doesn't just come in and wipe us out all the time. You can look at all of the mess going on in our country and he hasn't destroyed our country yet because he's patient. And he's, he's waiting for people to turn to him and repent. Uh, I mean, think about, think about Jonah and Nineveh, right? Jonah is told to go to Nineveh and preach a message of judgment. He said, in 40 days, Nineveh is going to be overturned, right? It's almost the same message that God brings to the earth. In 100, this is a lot longer time frame, 120 years, I'm going to flood the earth, right? Now Jonah goes into Nineveh. 40 days, Nineveh is going to be overthrown. But guess what? 
they repented. They turned from their sin. They turned to God and God said, I'll have mercy. Because God's patience is always to lead towards repentance and salvation. And, and Peter talks about this in his second letter. He said, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some would understand slowness. Right? You think, why, why wait 120 years? Why wait 40 days? Why wait... He's not slow in keeping his promises, as some would understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you. Not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation. That's what that says, hidden behind this. The Lord's patience means salvation. Which is something that I've been holding on to this week. That line, the Lord's patience means salvation. When, when we find ourselves in that place where we're, we're crying out to God and saying, God, how long? Why haven't you done anything yet? Peter says, the Lord's patience means salvation. He's waiting He's, he's, his patience means salvation for you That out of the, the wicked and the evil And the struggle and the suffering That's going on in your life God is going to bring about good Somehow And he will do it in his time Which usually is about twice as long Or three times longer than in our timing <laughs> About at the, and he, right, he pushes us to the point where we say, all right, I'm done. I'm tired of waiting. And he said, no, I've got more work to do. I'm patient. But his patience is leading to salvation for us. And he will. He will come. He will lift us out of the pit. But he'll do it in his timing. And so we wait. We have to wait patiently with hope. And as we wait... Peter reminds us that, that we, as we wait in our suffering, we're to remember that Christ suffered too. He suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. And remembering that, that our Savior suffered in the midst of our own suffering that that does a couple things for us the one thing that it does is it reminds us that Jesus knows what we're going through he's not just some disconnected being watching us suffer and has no idea what we're experiencing actually the bible says over and over and over again that that Christ has experienced everything we have experienced Every sorrow, every suffering, every emotion that we've experienced, Christ has experienced. So he knows. He knows exactly how hard it is for you in the midst of that suffering. And, and knowing that he knows helps us understand that he's wise in his patience. He's not just overlooking, he's not downplaying our suffering, but if he's waiting to pull us out of our suffering, it means he has something that he's working, he's preparing something for us. He's accomplishing a purpose. And so he understands it and yet he's waiting. But, but it also reminds us that when we understand that Christ suffered, we're reminded that his suffering had a purpose. It wasn't, it wasn't pointless suffering. It says he suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God. 
And so we're reminded that Jesus' suffering was meant to bring us salvation. That, that he lived this perfect life and he died this perfect death in order to cleanse us from our sins. To, to take us, who are unrighteous and sinners, and to start and to forgive us and then to start shaping us to become more like Him. And He only had to do it once because the one time He did it was perfect and complete. As He hung on the cross, He said, It's finished. I don't have to do this ever again. You don't have to do anything to pay for your sin ever again. Christ did it once for all. Forever, for those who look to him in faith. And, and so he says, you know, he reminds us that this suffering had a purpose which was to, to save us so that when we look to Christ in faith, we can be forgiven and redeemed. But it also, right at the end, it tells us he did this to do all of that so that he could bring you to God. Not so that he'd save you and just say, all right, now go figure it out on your own, or go wander off on your own and be lonely. No, he said, I I came in to save you to bring you to God. So you could be near to God. Even though there's going to be times where it feels like God is far away, the reality is God is near. He's right here, right next to you. And, and, and he opened up a way so that we could be near to God and we could actually cry out to God through our prayers. We could say, God, how long, oh Lord? Have you forgotten me? Christ's suffering actually opened up the way that we could come into God's presence and say, help, I need you. And so we have to trust him in that. But Peter talks about Christ's suffering to remind us of all of that, but, but what he's really starting to drive at is to remind us that for Christ, his suffering didn't end in defeat. His suffering wasn't the end of the story. It says he was put to death in the body, but he was made alive in, in the spirit. And it's kind of an interesting way to, to, say, to say that, but what it's really getting at, he, he was put to death in the humanly body that he took on to become like one of us, to be the perfect sacrifice. But he was made alive when he rose again. He, was, he rose again with this spiritual body, this body that we'll have one day that will last for all of eternity, this glorified body. And so Christ's suffering didn't end in defeat, but it ended in victory. And that's really what our whole passage is about this morning. It's explaining this victory of Jesus Christ through his resurrection. And it's important to remember that because this has got to be one of the most weird and confusing passages in the Bible. I mean, all, all of the pastors and theologians that I respect, not all of them, but most of them get to this passage and they go... I don't know what he's talking about. You know, Martin Luther, right? We think Martin Luther's great. Martin Luther's like, this is a beautiful passage that we have no idea what it means. <laughs> right? Um, but I've been studying it this week, and I un- I've, I've understood this passage more than I have ever in my life, I would say, what, he's, what I think Peter's trying to get at. And once you understand that he's talking about Jesus' victory, over sin and death and Satan. And so he goes, he talks about Jesus rising from the dead victorious, and then it says, here's what Jesus did. He went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits. 
To those who were disobedient long ago, when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built, in it only a few people, eight and all, were saved through water. And as I read that, my first thought, I have it right on the side of my notes, was, What? Like, Peter, what are you talking why, why are you just kind of like, you're talking about the resurrection and all of this, and now all of a sudden you just, you know, ADHD, right? Just, whoop, got distracted and ran off on a rabbit trail. But it starts to make sense. He, but what happened after Jesus rose from the dead, in just a, in a real vague way, what he did, it says, right? So get this. He rose from the dead, and then he proclaimed something to some spirits. Who were disobedient during the days of Noah, right? So that's, that's pretty clear what he's talking about, but everybody said, well, who are the spirits, and what did he proclaim, and where did he do this? And so to understand that, he's talking about this part of Genesis. At the beginning of Genesis 6, it says, When human beings began to increase in number on the earth, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of humans were beautiful, and they married any of them they chose. And, and this ends up causing a mess of the world. It's not, I don't think it's necessarily the root cause of everything that led up to the flood, but this is a mess that's going on there. And the part that kind of gets people weirded out a little bit is this phrase, the sons of God. And you can interpret it different ways, but as you go through the Bible, every time that phrase is used, it's talking about angels. Every time. And people don't like that. They think, ooh, that's kind of weird. So they try to come up with a different explanation of it. But, but I have to say, if the Bible's using that phrase every single time, I'm not going to change it. So it's got to be, there's some angels that did some things with women that they shouldn't have been doing, caused a mess. In the days of Noah. And... And then you look at this passage in Revelation where uh, throughout history it's been looked at as describing Satan when, when he rebelled in heaven and was thrown out of heaven. That It says, another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon, right? This is a picture of Satan. An enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on its heads. And its tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. And throughout history, that's been described as when, when Satan tried to rebel against God and God kicked him out of heaven, he took a third of the angels with him. A third of the angels went with him and were thrown out and thrown back down to earth. They thought they could overtake God, and they couldn't. And so now you have these angels who've been cast out of heaven and are on earth, and I would say they're imprisoned, kicked out, right? And so then, when... So here's where I'm getting with all of this. Peter has this picture of of Jesus rising from the dead and going out and proclaiming a message to these fallen angels who were imprisoned, who were messing around doing things they shouldn't have done. And it's, it's pretty interesting as you go through Scripture... There's always, throughout Scripture, a connection between these spiritual realities and suffering. 
um, we've kind of disconnected that for the most part, and we just go to the doctor, and, and we kind of have ignored this. But but as you like, if you go to the the book of Job, right? Job has all of these physical things happening, right? His, his kids are killed. His he has all these sores and boils, and who's what's working? There's stuff going on in the heavenly realms, leading to that, right? And, and even in the New Testament, Paul says this. I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, right? So he says, I got a thorn in my flesh, in my body. There's something hurting my body. But he says, it's a messenger of Satan. There's some spiritual thing going on beneath it. Or he he writes to this church that he hasn't talked to for a long time. And he says, brothers and sisters, when we were orphaned by being separated from you for a short time, in person, but not in thought, like I kept thinking about you, but out of our intense longing, we made every effort to see you. We wanted to come to you. I, Paul, did again and again, but Satan blocked our way. Again, right? So you see this kind of spiritual thing going on, causing some separation, something going on, some suffering in the physical world. And so we, we have to, we, if we're going to think biblically and live in the world biblically, we have to understand that this is going on. In all of our suffering, there is some spiritual reality going on to all of our suffering. I would say there's some spiritual reality going on to all of the chaos going on in our world right now. There's some spiritual reality there. There's spiritual reality in all of this suffering. And, and Satan and demons are real. And they hate God, and they hate His kingdom, and they hate His people. And so their, their goal and their job is to overthrow that kingdom, throw things off course. And that kind of weirds people out. <laughs> and gets, some people get really fearful about that. But, but here's Peter's point in all of this. When Jesus rose from the dead victorious... He went and had a word with these disobedient spirits that have been imprisoned for doing things they shouldn't do. And Jesus, victorious king, went and sat them down and had a conversation with them. And he proclaimed something to them. He proclaimed the gospel to them. And he said, look, you've tried to kill me. Guess what? I'm alive. Guess what? You tried to remove this forgiveness and cleansing from my people. Guess what? They're forgiven and cleansed. And he proclaimed the gospel to these fallen spirits. You know, maybe it's my sinful, but I kind of pictured Jesus almost rubbing it in their face a little bit. But he's probably, you know, he probably didn't. but, But I kind of picture it that way a little bit, saying, hey, you threw everything you had at me. You lost. And I won. And he proclaimed the gospel to them, and they didn't repent or believe. They just got more angry, and they hated him more and more. And that's why Peter even ends this passage by talking about the resurrection. We're saved by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who who went into heaven and is at God's right hand with the angels and the authorities and the powers in submission to him. He's got control, authority over all the powers, right? Right before he ascended into heaven, Jesus said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So yeah, Satan's real and doing things. But he's got nothing on Jesus. Demons are real. They're doing things that they shouldn't be doing. 
But Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth. They've got no power over him. He's kicked them in the teeth. They're done. They're doing things, but they have no authority, no power. They are in submission to him. So we don't have to like walk through life afraid of you know a demon hiding behind every bush or behind every trial and tribulation. We know that Christ has won. And that's what Peter's reminding us. In every trial, in every suffering, whether there's a spiritual reality going on behind it, the reality is Christ won. Over every suffering and every trial that you've had, Christ defeated it. He won. And, and that, when we find ourselves crying out to God saying, how much longer? We look to Christ and we remember that Christ walked through suffering and came out victorious on the other side. And that through Him we can too. That Christ has authority over the powers and principalities and angels and demons. He has authority all of, over all of them and that we can triumph too through Him. Which is, which is why Peter talks about our baptism in the midst of this. Because you think, what's the baptism? All of a sudden he starts talking about baptism in the middle of this. What's he doing? But it's the, baptism is the sign and, and seal of us dying with Christ and rising with Christ. Of us joining Christ in his suffering and joining Christ in his victory. And so Peter says, when you were baptized, you were reminded that you were going to suffer. Just like Christ suffered. But, when you were baptized, you were also reminded that you were going to be victorious with Christ. You were going to rise from the dead with Christ. So no matter what suffering you are in, you have been joined with Christ in His suffering, but also in His victory. That suffering no longer has the last word in your life. And death no longer has the last word in your life. And Satan no longer has the last word in your life. But Christ does. And Christ says... Victory. And that's really what we have to hold on to. In the midst of whatever trial we have, we hold on to the fact that Christ has victory. And it doesn't make everything just better immediately. I mean, you can be hurting and struggling and realize Christ has victory and then you don't all of a sudden just... It doesn't take all the pain away. It doesn't take all of the suffering away. It doesn't cause us to just kind of float around. But it gives us hope. But Christ defeated this. He'll bring us through this. And, and we can even taste that victory a little bit now. Even in the midst of our current struggle and suffering, we can taste a little bit of the victory that Christ has brought us. But we also know that down the road, one day we will fully taste it. Full victory. No pain. No sorrow. Nothing. None of this mess we're dealing with now. One day we will fully taste it. We get glimpses now, but we will enjoy it fully in heaven forever. But for now... We wait patiently with hope. Because we know that God fulfills His promises, right? Noah had to wait 120 years to see his, that promise fulfilled. But God did it. God brought him through. Brought him through this crazy worldwide flood. Brought him through and delivered him and his family to the other side. And He'll do that for us. We don't know how long it's going to last. We don't know how long we'll be in the pit. We don't know how long um, God's perfect timing is, but we do know that God is good and He is faithful and He keeps His promises. 
and that he will deliver us in his time. So we keep trusting him. We trust his patience, but we also trust his salvation and his victory. And, and the part I love about Psalm 13, I'll encourage you, go home this afternoon, read all of Psalm 13, not with me having the, the beginning of it at the beginning and the end of it here at the end. But in the midst of the psalmist crying out, how long have you forgotten me? He knows the victory that he has and he ends the psalm this way. But I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. And I will sing the Lord's praise because he has been good to me. Let's pray. Father, we do come before you knowing that we should trust you and yet we don't trust you as we should. Recognizing that often our impatience causes us to grow weary and try to take things in our own hands. That often we do only what is right in our own eyes. So Father, we ask your forgiveness. And we thank you for what Christ did on the cross for us. That he died once for the forgiveness of our sins. So not only do we ask your forgiveness, Lord, but we ask you to to stir our hearts to trust you more fully in the midst of our suffering. To rest more fully in you. Father, remind us of your promises. Remind us of your faithfulness. Remind us of Christ's victory. That no sorrow or suffering in this life has any power over us because Christ has defeated it all. And help us hold on to that and give us strength to hold on to that through whatever trial or suffering or sorrow comes our way. And pull us through, Lord, and help us to wait patiently for you to pull us out of the pit and set our feet on a rock and give us a new song to sing. And all God's people said, Amen.